So good morning. Um, we have a few people missing from our usual setup here. Uh, Calissa and Wayne are, are still out and attending to things in life. Um, it's just me today, <laughs> but I'm glad y'all are here. A few announcements before we get started. One is I had announced the last couple of weeks that funds were being dispersed over the next couple of weeks to a few different kind of crisis-oriented situations. One is to Interfaith Ministries to support Afghan refugees coming to Houston. And that they expect that these people will be coming over the next six to nine months, uh, upwards of 2,500 individuals coming to Houston specifically. But as we know, there's far more than that who are being evacuated and lifted out of Afghanistan. And then some of that money is also going to support Haiti, UMCOR, United Methodist uh, program that goes from church to church in Haiti um, to still help recovery from the devastating earthquake that they suffered a couple of weeks ago. Still in a process, I think that there wasn't even complete rebuilding after the last terrible earthquake that they suffered. But this is um, money well spent, I think. And then there was recently a request to support a music program uh, for children after school at Boynton United Methodist Church, which has sort of become a, a bit of a sister church with some of the ordinary women in this class. And um, they're providing musical instruments for kids to learn how to play after school. So that's all I have. Oh, one more. I'll say welcome to Ordinary Life first. And as you know, this is an educational program of St. Paul's, usually taught by Bill and myself recently. And most Sundays, Bill is right here cracking some kind of joke, but um, he underwent some outpatient surgery this week on his hand and arm and is recovering nicely at home. I've gotten texts from him, so I'm assuming that his hands are working. <laughs> but he says, and I quote, I will be back soon to being a spiritual troublemaker and more. <laughs> so we can say, wave hi to Bill if he's, he, he said he was going to watch this morning and wishes us well. Um, and I'm glad you all are here, whether you're online in pajamas or right here in person. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that we're... Wine and cheese people. Wine and cheese people, too. <laughs> hey, you know, it doesn't have to be any time of day anymore to have that, I think. <laughs> uh, I told Bill, you can try out having a mimosa during ordinary life. See what that's like. <laughs> I, this is coffee, I promise, but if I, if I get a little, you know, just somebody rescue me. Um, so we'll start. We pray to and from sacred mystery these words. We offer ourselves to you to build with us and to do with us what you please. Relieve us of bondage to the ego so that we may better grow into our true selves. And of course, no matter who you are and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Hi. <laughs> So last week, I mentioned that there are kind of singular lines in John that are so striking to me. 
Uh, one of my favorite authors wrote that the, the gospel writers must have been poets. And there are some really poetic lines in the gospels. One of them, and it's translated in two ways that I love, is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And it's also translated as, I am thunder in the desert, which is the title I've given to this week's talk. The second part of this line in John is roughly the same in all translations. It says something along the lines of, make straight the way for God. Yeah. The Hebrew word kol translates as three things. It means voice and thunder and sound. Kol is referenced many times in the Old Testament. You could even probably conjure a psalm about the thunder of God's voice in the you know, wilderness or crying out for the thundering voice of God. But we live in Texas. <laughs> we know something about good, good old-fashioned thunderstorms. That low rumble that spreads across the sky and becomes deeper and deeper, and it resonates almost in our very bodies. As a girl, I used to love sitting on the porch and watching the thunderstorms. In fact, I, I still do that. Who am I kidding? <laughs> it feels strangely daring and thrilling and calming to me, too. So this last week, as I was writing, I was actually sitting on my screened-in porch as those storms were rolling in, writing this lesson, a little bit of nice synchronicity from, from the planet. <laughs> but in the day, back in the day, in the biblical times, thunder was equated with the voice of God before we actually understood the physics of how thunder worked. Maybe the Bible was set in Texas, after all. <laughs> right. But it's funny, these two translations, I am the voice calling out in the wilderness and I am thunder in the desert, feel very different to me. The meanings may be somewhat similar, and they are. Both have to do with expressing an unpopular idea or opinion with calling something forth before it has happened. It gives the idea that the individual in the wilderness or the desert is kind of the sole person crying out or expressing that particular opinion, which is often ignored. The voice crying in the wilderness to me reads more like a lament about being ignored, unheard, or alone. It reminds me of Psalm 40, which my favorite band turned into a song called 40, and it goes, how long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? It reminds me of that. How long do we keep crying out in the wilderness? Whereas thunder in the desert to me is a bit prescient, foreboding, or prophetic. Thunder is a sign of rain, and rain is nourishment in the dryness of the desert. This is the way that John makes for Jesus. John is the voice in the wilderness. John is the thunder in the desert, making way for Jesus. What comes after are these signs of healing and transformation. So the thunder in the desert ushers forth the book of signs, which we're getting into in the Gospel of John. And just like thunder precedes a storm, these are the words that precede Jesus as we head into this book of signs. Traditionally, the signs are interpreted as the miracles performed by Jesus that gave proof that he was the Messiah, the chosen one, the Son of God. But there's another way to hear his voice, this thunder, if you will. The miracles are also Jesus's interactions with dramatically different but ordinary people 
to whom he gives the power of insight and wholeness, to whom he reveals truths that heal and steady them. These are stories, as we follow along with them, about integration, illustrations of the pervasiveness of grace and generosity and sacred mystery. There is so much life in this desert. So hello to the thunder, hello to the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I want to pay homage to one of my favorite authors, Padre Gotuma. He reads the poetry for On Being's poetry section. Um, Krista Tippett does the podcast On Being, and he has a Poetry Unbound segment of that. And he's just a wonderful reader. But I'm borrowing a little bit of his form. And if you have picked up the book In the Shelter, then you'll soon know what I'm talking about. And even if you haven't picked it up, you'll soon guess what that form is. If you had asked me 20 years ago, if I imagined myself standing up here teaching alongside Bill in the context of a church about the Gospel of John, I would have choked on what I was eating and possibly died. <laughs> uh, I definitely would have needed the Heimlich after that. <laughs> But the question of God, the person of Jesus, these have always been provocative and moving topics for me, a continually changing question mark, a problem to be solved. There were few people in my life who were very dear to me, who I had let convince me, though, that I was not a good enough Christian. One of these people told me once through tears that she was so sad I would not be in heaven with her. That was back when I believed that heaven was a place, and it was devastating to hear that I wasn't going to get to go there. Another one of these people invited me to a home church where a small group of people laid hands on me and prayed for me to release the doubt in my heart. The leader said something super ominous in the beginning, like, there is someone here who is not in line. And he looked right at me. <laughs> it felt that way. And everyone gathered around and put hands on me. Sometimes touch feels healing. Sometimes touch feels like it burns. Sometimes it is altogether unwelcome. And I'm pretty sure the circle of people with their hands on me that day could feel my shoulders up to my ears tensing. But my God, these were painful moments. This is part of why the book of John is like entering it is a bit of healing. They remained painful for a long time. Hello to the ways in which we don't fit inside of people's boxes, to the ways in which our voices become small, but hello to the ways in which we surprise ourselves by climbing out of them. At some point, I realized that neither God nor Jesus are problems to be solved, just mysteries with which to participate. I realized that maybe the right kind of Christian might not need to proclaim themselves as such. I remember Bill once saying that some of the most deeply spiritual people he knows seem like atheists. They don't proclaim anything. They just are. A decent teacher does not have all the answers but is comfortable sitting with the questions and willing to share occasional insights that arise. <laughs> when I taught in school, so I was a school teacher for 15 years and now I work teaching teachers about social emotional well-being and development but it took me a while in my younger years of teaching to have the humility to say I don't know over time this has become easier for me but I was trained to live in a world of answers I still give lots of unsolicited advice that usually starts with maybe you should try 
dot, 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 <laughs> instead of first asking, what do you think you should do? Around 20 years ago, I had a massage with a woman who was trained in the art of chakra realignment. And I really didn't know what that was 20 years ago either. But it's not very often you remember a specific massage. If you get them with some frequency, I don't anymore, probably because of COVID. But this one is like seared into my memory. At some point during the session, she just started giggling. It bubbled over. And you know, you're, you're not super clothed during a massage. So I was like, what is she? laughing about. <laughs> so I kind of self-consciously said, what is it? And she said, I just keep seeing Jesus sitting on your shoulder like a friend. Okay, I can roll with that. Hello to Jesus sitting on our shoulder like a friend and to the sweet laughter that calls forth the things that are hidden. This week's lesson is like thunder preempting our journey into the book of signs like Jesus, sitting on our shoulder as we enter. When we hear thunder, we need to ask a couple of questions. Are we prepared for what is to come? Are our eyes open to hear, and our, sorry, are our ears open to hear, and our eyes open to see? And do you believe in miracles? This is the Atkama Desert in Chile, before and then after the rains. Can you all see that? transition. It's a miracle, that transformation. Powerful images like this are meant to get our attention and invite our curiosity. When our conscious mind isn't paying attention, our unconscious mind has a whole array of shocking images to choose from that usually make themselves known in dreams and in many stories in the Bible through visions. For instance, I had a dream the other night that my oldest son was to be executed. You can believe, better believe that got my attention. <laughs> I got in dialogue with this dream right away. Make way for the thunder of your own imagination that precedes the rain. Let's think of the stories of Jesus as the rain that can nourish and grow something in us if we are willing to see them from many angles, to enter into them. This is how we evolve the old stories, by wrestling with them in new ways. They can help us open up wide they can help us learn something new, or they can limit us, make us believe we're not quite enough, but you are enough. The stories about Jesus in the Book of Signs are meant to blow our minds, just like a Texas thunderstorm. The images and meanings in them are fantastic, and in many ways embedded in our psyche that we can almost immediately conjure images for them, water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000. They are not literally true, at the level, but they exist at the level of archetype or symbols that are shared among our collective unconscious. They're stories of radical imagination, personal integration, and collective liberation. The miracles included in the Book of Signs definitely did not make Jesus or his followers more popular with the powers that be, but they have much to teach us about becoming whole. The seven signs are, you might be able to recite them with me, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding, an official's son is healed, a crippled man walks, loaves and fish feed 5,000, Jesus walks on water, a blind man sees, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. We neither hear nor tell stories as they are. 
we hear and tell stories as we are. If we can do both well, tell the stories and hear them well, we might find ourselves being pulled into something that doesn't yet exist, into something new. The signs are stories of belonging that can open us toward ourselves and also toward each other instead of separate us further. They're not designed for us to make proclamations about someone's ability to get into heaven or not. <laughs> They're designed to help us make proclamations about belonging. Padre Gautuma wrote of the signs, we know that sometimes we search and search and search for what we cannot see, and still it stays dark and stormy. Hello to the dark storm. If these stories, this, sorry, in these stories is the story of a life. Sometimes it is stormy, and sometimes there is bread to share. Sometimes our picture of God is a food-sharing man on the side of a grass-covered hill. Other times, it's more frightening than we can imagine. We may prefer one story over another, but they both happen over and over again and again. While I am in the storm, someone else is on the hillside, and still someone else is waiting in a boat, watching waves begin to form. It is as if to say that only in the middle of a storm can we find the truth that will steady us. So today I'm going to share a couple of stories that operate on this level of archetype or pull on archetypes to help them make sense. And these will prepare us to get into the way of stories about Jesus. These are the thunder readying us for his reign. Hopefully they will help us make the road straighter for God or mystery to enter in. Hello to the straight road that is endless and wide. We know or we've learned from history that during the course of enslavement in the New World between 1525 and 1866, that over 12 million people were brought from Africa, 10 million of whom survived the Middle Passage, so 2 million died en route. At the height of enslavement in the United States, sometime around 1840, there were roughly 59,000 people in bondage here. By this time, the domestic slave trade was very lively. Those who owned enslaved people began to breed them like animals and sold the children away from mothers as soon as they seemed healthy and strong enough. Sometimes they were just infants. Out of desperation and terror, some mothers smothered their infants to avoid having them sold into slavery. That is an act of total desperation. My husband's ancestors were enslaved somewhere around Louisiana, where they picked cotton and harvested sugarcane. Not very many stories survived of their lives, so we fill in the gaps where we can, sometimes with imaginary tales. My oldest son, this is the story, was once asked to imagine why his ancestors chose to come to America and what form of transportation they took. Let's be clear, his black ancestors didn't choose. They were forced. At age eight, though, Caleb, my oldest, intuited some of these very complex themes. Here is a picture he drew and the story that accompanied it. These are his words that I recorded. The brown-skinned people are slaves. They are all working and frowning because they are trapped. They are making bricks for houses. The pink blocks are doors, and the blue ones are glass for the windows waiting to be put in. 
The white-skinned man has a checklist of all the things that need to be moved into the house once it is done. He sits on a pile of brown wood while the brown-skinned people build the house and move things into it. The white-skinned man is smiling. A helicopter is watching over the slaves. There weren't helicopters during that time, but in his mind there were. Making sure they do their work and delivering a garage door for the house. <laughs> The airplane is carrying a load of toys for the white-skinned children that the slaves will have to unload for them. One of the slaves is hiding behind the ladder, trying to rest without being seen, and another is carrying bricks. A couch sits on top of a pile of wood for the house. The slave behind the wood pile is making a trap door that reaches a ladder in the sky. He is standing on top of a silver chimney trying to hide until the white-skinned man looks away so that the slaves can escape through the ladder in the sky. Somewhere in it, in this story, he had to connect these opposing forces of the brutality of enslavement with his free existence. It must have been a miracle, he thought, or magical, a ladder in the sky that was shared between generations. The ladder in the sky is an archetype. Many of us know it from the Old Testament from the story of Jacob, who had the dream of the ladder leading to the heavens when he escaped his twin brother Esau's wrath after having tricked him into giving him the title of the firstborn son. Reaching across time, Caleb and his ancestors each had a hand upon this ladder. Caleb is their wildest dream come true, their radical imagination at work. This story could be a parable. You can kind of imagine old man Caleb someday sitting around making s'mores with his great-grandchildren and saying, how we became free was through this ladder in the sky. We climbed the ladder in the sky and got to the other side. It is, of course, not literal. This is on par with Moses parting the sea. Harriet Tubman was nicknamed Moses. She was said to have received visions in her time working with the Underground Railroad. And perhaps she saw her own ladders in the skies and parted the waters to free the enslaved. You see the power of stories we tell. They allow us to believe in better worlds. They allow us to imagine futures that we can't yet conceive of. Each of the stories about Jesus does this too. They open and include, hello to the ladders in the sky that lead to freedom. On an archetypal level, the latter symbolizes this continuous, constant connection with the divine powers of the unconscious. It represents the steps from a lesser to a greater consciousness. So we're working up this ladder. Sometimes we drop back down, but the ladder is almost in continuous mo motion. It bridges heaven and earth, making them inseparable. In this story, it is also about the power of imagination to see possibilities beyond the limitations of circumstance, which our divine powers often do. Bessel van der Kolk, the psychologist who wrote this wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score, believes that trauma is overcome by an, an intact imagination. So our ability to imagine can help transform trauma. We can process a trauma by a literal use of imagination, so drawing, writing, performing, poetry, or we can engage our five senses to re-enter the traumatic moment, imagine the voices, the smells, the textures, sights, and sounds that return us there. And actually, even as scary as that sounds, this helps our bodies become re 
membered to itself. If we can process the trauma by being in our body, not outside of our body, it helps integrate the trauma as experience rather than as something separate. Vanderkolk tells this lovely story of a little boy whose preschool was right by the Twin Towers when they fell. The children saw the whole thing. They saw planes, flames, bodies, and so much smoke and dust. You remember the photos of people walking out covered in dust like ghosts almost. The day after, the little boy did a drawing that was prompted by, I, I don't know if it was teacher or parents, to help him process what he had seen. Vanderkolk writes, the drawing depicted what he had seen the day before, an airplane slamming into the tower. I think that is the black kind of shape at the top. A ball of fire, firefighters, and people jumping from the tower's windows. He was about four at the time. But at the bottom of the picture, he had drawn something else. A black circle, you see the black circle at the bottom? At the foot of the buildings. He had no idea what it was, or I had no idea what it was, so I asked him. It's a trampoline, he replied. What was a trampoline doing there? The little boy explained, so that the next time when people have to jump, they will be safe. <coughs> Vanderkolk writes, I was stunned. This five-year-old boy, a witness to unspeakable mayhem and disaster just 24 hours before, had made this, he had made this drawing, had used his imagination to process what he had seen and began to go on with his life. An intact imagination helps us to move through trauma. When we worry, I, I was a school counselor for a long time and one of my interests was in art therapy. We worry when kids can't imagine beyond their circumstances. Trauma can arrest our imagination, but imagination can also free us from trauma. For him, this little boy, the trampoline became a symbol of safety. Caleb's ancestors, my sons, had to imagine beyond their circumstances for him to exist. And Caleb tapped into that shared imagination when considering the question, how did you get here? I found his story and his drawing so profound on so many levels. Kids seem to get it. They seem like they're like a little closer to the source than we are, but we still have that in us, that ability to tap into that innocence in a way, or that belief. I think it's so cool, and I have utterly failed in teaching my kids Bible stories. He doesn't know the story of Jacob's ladder, but he tapped into that archetype as a symbol of freedom. The stories of Jesus invite us into a process of active imagination like this that allow us to conceive of a world where ladders lead to freedom, trampolines encircle buildings, the lame can walk, the blind can see, a collective consciousness of care and healing is in our reach. Hello to the imagination that stirs something in us. I believe there's a creation story in each one of us, a deep purpose that drives us into action, that our spirits kind of brood over like birds above the watery abyss. That's how Genesis starts. God brooded over the watery abyss, imagining what it could become. Water is the archetype for endless creation and the unconscious. And to know our specific creation story, we must enter the water. There is no other way. I once had a kind of waking dream in which I tumbled into the mouth of a cave, not to alarm you, but this is sort of what it was like, from this darkest black water 
and the cave was stacked floor to ceiling with bones. And in my imagination, it reminded me of the pictures of the killing fields that we see in Cambodia after the de devastating genocide of the Khmer Rouge. It was as if I had stumbled into one of these graves, but I'm standing there in this sort of dream or whatever it was in the middle of the cave. The bones are all around me. They were kind of clinking and clanking, like settling into each other. They sounded like voices or the seashells on a dream catcher when the wind blows. They were like little ghosts. I asked the dream, what am I supposed to do with all of these bones? <laughs> no answer, of course. This is how sacred mystery plays with us in silence, sometimes trusting that we'll figure it out. But somehow I got that I was to pulverize these bones, destroy every last one of them. In, the, in my mind's eye, I tried bashing them together. I tried crumbling them in my hands. I tried everything imaginable, but no, nothing worked. So I pulled them all to the center of the cave, made a huge pile of bones, and I jumped on top of the pile. I jumped and jumped and jumped until the mountain of bones whittled down to dust. And the floor and me and the cave were blanketed in, in that gray ash of the minced bones. I took the ash in my hands and I began to fling, fling fistfuls of it into the air. They did not come down heavy, like ch chunks of bone, but glittering, like dust in sunlight when you watch that in the, your window. I flung more of, these, of the dust, handful after handful, until all the bones sparkled like gems, and there was no separation. There was no cave, there was no pile, there was no ceiling, only a sky full of stars and the wet earth. This is a story about endings and beginnings, about letting go of the old, and embracing something new. Bones are symbols of rebirth through transformation, our indestructible life force. And with them, in this dream, I birthed an entire sky. I was Eve this time, using Adam's rib to create the universe anew. It is said that we are made of stardust. I knew a monk once in Colorado, he was one of my professors, and we got to go down to this monastery to learn from him. And he once described life as the greatest, nature's great recycling program. Stars die, they fall to earth, their exploded core provides all the elements and minerals necessary to create life. And then we die, our bones become dust, and that dust gradually becomes the stars. This goes on and on and on. Hello to the bones that become stars, that become bones again. The Kabbalah, the uh, Jewish mystical study of the study of Jewish mysticism, has a similar creation story. All of existence with, started with an explosion from one point of light that is continually multiplying. All of these points of light became embedded in each individual being. This is the limitless light of the divine or the infinite known as the Ein Sof, which literally means no end. The divine, or God, is just another word for infinity, and it is a small piece of divine or divine light inside of each of us. In this way, we carry on infinity. infinity. So these stories are true stories, the ones I shared with you. None of them are literal. They link us to this kind of creative unfolding that is more vast than we can imagine. Physicists 
and this work has been done most of the 20th century, and it, we are learning new things all the time. I'm not a physicist, but if we read articles about what astrophysicists are discovering, they're just incredible. For a long time, they've been talking about a unified theory of everything. Where did it all come from? Mystics ask the same question. Where did it all come from? Physicists do it with formulas and theories. They come up with theories like the Big Bang. And that's the best theory, theory we have for the beginning of evolution. And mystics do it with stories. There's so much to be shared between these two fields. I just read an article about how physicists and mystics are working together with their stories and theories to help think of new ways to discover. So you can imagine that a, a mystic pondering the origin of life uh, and darkness and light could lead to some idea about maybe there's something called a black hole, right? And so all of these things are kind of feeding each other. They're not so separate. Stories like this lead us beyond our wildest imaginations, and they can help us evolve our ideas about mystery. A unified theory of everything, black holes, ladders in the sky, who knows if Caleb inherited that last one somewhere in his DNA, embedded in the stardust of his ancestors that was shared from one generation to the next. They say that we hold memories in our bodies for up to 13 generations. So these things are shared across time. Speaking of generational wisdom, did you all know that John Shelby Spong died last Sunday? Right about the time we were teaching, which is sort of a strange and sad movement of synchronicity. It seems like it was literally that morning that it happened. As when we were finishing, we got texts from different people saying, did you know John Shelby Spong died this morning? So it's as if it's a calling to sort of continue his work. He was 90. He had been quite ill. He's among the ancestors now, among the stars. And what amazing synchronicity it is that we are getting to continue to evolve his work. Such is the nature of ideas, though. They're like threads that sort of sew together one generation to the next. And I think they're meant to be evolved. The stories that we learned from our ancestors we take them, we fact check them, we work with them, we, we, we evolve them, right? This is how we grow. This is how we imagine new possibilities for the worlds we want to live in. Drawing upon Spong's wisdom and his scholarship, there are a couple of things to bear in mind that he points out about the Book of Signs. Number one, John most likely had multiple editors but they were held together by a common commitment to growth and understanding. They shared a collective conscious about the world in which they live and creating the world in which they wanted to live. The signs are not literal. The characters are also likely not literal. There probably wasn't a Lazarus, for example. They are symbolic. This does not mean that they are any less true. Just like dreams use really powerful images to get our attention, the writers in John create these really memorable personalities who become pillars around which the Jesus story circulates. The characters, he says, are aspects of our own psyches meant to open up what is hidden within. 
And John Sanford, the other author we are relying on who wrote Mystical Christianities, writes a lot about this, how we can relate personally and enter and intrapersonally to these characters. So we enter into a process of active imagination. And this is an, a Jungian psychology word that describes the bridge um, between the conscious and the unconscious minds. So that sort of dream that I described, it was kind of like I was awake, but I was asleep. It was almost like a meditation, but, in, but I was interacting with it. Robert Johnson, who wrote the book Inner Work, um, probably several of you in this room have read it. it. It's a good book, writes about active imagination, that it is a dialogue that you enter into with the different parts of yourselves that live in the unconscious in some ways similar to dreaming, except that you are fully awake and conscious during the experience. This is, in fact, what gives this technique its distinctive quality. Instead of going into a dream, you go into your imagination while you are awake. This is what we're being invited to do with the miracle stories of Jesus, to engage with them on the level of active imagination. Who are we in the story? Where do we stand? Can we imagine ourselves interacting with the different characters? Ask them questions. This can be a spiritual practice for a long time. <laughs> Maybe you'll think at the end of this we've spent too long on the book of John, but I encourage you to read these um, book of signs or the miracles as we go and just engage with them on this level of imagination. If you're doing it as a practice, you might have like a notebook or art supplies if you like to draw in front of you and just kind of write or draw unselfconsciously. It doesn't, I know a lot of people feel, feel fearful about journaling or drawing because they're like, I don't know how to draw. I can only draw stick figures. So what? Draw stick figures. But you can let that come as you engage with them. The point is to get out of the thinking, analyzing brain, to be in the imaginative, intuitive, creative brain. If you enter into a process of active imagination, there are kind of some basic steps you want to keep in mind. And step one is to find focus. Bill will say when, when he does his spiritual practice, he does something like ring the bowl or have a sound or a smell that will just help him focus right then and there. I think that's very useful. This is just quieting the mind, becoming a witness to all of our rushing thoughts rather than participating in them. This is a practice of Buddhist meditation that you're like watching the stream, watching everything go by and not, not getting too attached to any one feeling or any one image. This allows us to be an observer to the images and to the thoughts that pop up. So the second step is to dialogue with the experience. So it's kind of like me standing in the middle of that cave and going, what am I supposed to do with all of these bones? <laughs> or Caleb being asked, where did you come from? That was something that took him into an active imagination. So we return to that story or dream starting from the beginning. You can work with dreams in this way. Place yourself inside of it and just wait, like in the center of a cave, to see who or what will show up. It might take some time, but don't jump out. It's OK to be with that time. Maybe it takes weeks for someone to show up. Here, you're just letting the images arise and letting your unconscious speak. It's OK to ask it questions. Otherwise, we enter into fantasy, right? If we're not participating in it, then we're in a passive fantasy rather than an active imagination. 
This is important, um, and actually a sad story kind of comes along with this. Don't neglect ethics and values. What I mean by that is preserve your deepest value. Don't sacrifice other parts of your character, like being on time or participating in life. But when you're if driven by fantasy or desire, I had a friend who um, died unexpectedly, and he was so almost, I don't know what the right word to use is, almost addicted to the active imagination process. So much so that it was like he left the, the waking world. You know, he stayed there so often. And I don't, I'm not saying that's the reason why he died, but he was separate from the living too. So we don't need to allow our process to become neglectful of everyday life. It's like a designated spiritual practice, a time that you set aside, not a replacement for our day-to-day -day reality. Step four, generate an artifact. This is where you can write or draw what you see or feel, kind of stream of conscious. Again, not worrying about it if it's not good. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if you keep doing this, something clicks in your psyche. You'll start to see patterns emerge. Maybe that same shape shows up again and again and again. You get to get curious about that shape or that word that just keeps emerging. What you get from all the signs in John, for example, if you choose to engage with them in this way, will have some thread of continuity, some way of being linked. And then step five, once you're finished, think the process. That can either be done through ritual or the creative object that you kind of offer. Has anyone ever participated in making an altar? Uh, Dia de los Muertos is a popular altar-making time for um, many Hispanic cultures. And it's, that's an object that you can make, just a little altar. It could even just be something like a bowl. I sat with that waking dream about the bones for a very long time, more than a year. Actually, I think I'm still kind of working it out and what my creation story is. I've since had many dreams about bones. Eventually, I just bought this huge, I think it's three feet by six feet canvas on which to process my dialogue with it. This is where it started, again, just washes of color. I have all this stuff. I'm a trained artist, so it's easy for me to engage with my imagination in this way. This is where it went, and this is where it ended. I have a story about what I think this is about, but it was very different from start to finish, very different. There's no expectation that anything you do in the practice of active imagination has to be polished or finished or on a canvas, but you might surprise yourself. Carl Jung never thought of himself as an artist, but he took three years between 1913 and 1916, just after his break with Sigmund Freud, and he, that, that, that breaks in him into kind of a personal and professional crisis. And he dove into this emerging process he was imagining with his unconscious. And he created the writings and drawings that would become the Red Book. Has anyone spent any time with the Red Book? It, it, it's been in existence for uh, just about 100 years, but he worked with it over the course of 15 years, really intensely between 1913 and 16. But it didn't come out to be published, to be engaged with, with the wider public until 2009. It's just, I, I actually bought myself one as a gift to myself. Um, are we supposed to do that? Is that still okay? Um, and it's just full of his writings and his manuscript. I don't think you're meant to engage with all of it, but the images that he created are phenomenal. 
He said it never was complete, and he's right. We're never fully finished. That's how we keep growing. He created so many wonderful images. It's kind of, I mean, you can look up some of these images, and he worked a lot with the image of the mandala, which is that what he determined was the dreamer's pursuit of wholeness. So we enter this circle, we follow in the circle, and we become whole through this process. I think the Bible is kind of like the Red Book. It's bound and complete, but I think it's unfinished. We bring the characters in the Book of Signs to life. We get to know Jesus in this context, and we also get to know a more complete picture of ourselves through the practice of active imagination with these texts. Our dreams and stories and visions are ways of engaging with these characters. They are our thunder in the desert. Our voices in the wilderness. This is a signal that something is about to change. How we respond to them is what deepens our self-awareness and calls forth new ideas, not just about ourselves, but about the world and how we operate in it. Jesus was never popular with the powers that be because he imagined a new world. He was way outside of their box. Hello to unpopularity. With these signs, the writers of John are asking us to engage with mythos, our intuition. Even though our 21st century understanding of the universe is far bigger and greater than anything John's writers could have imagined, the metaphors still hold power. That's what makes them archetypal, that they can sort of hold power over time. They give us clues that salvation is actually deliverance from injustice in this life, not a free ride to glory in the next one. They reveal that Jesus is not part of the domination system, that he doesn't abide by hierarchies and our institutional oppression. In our really ordinary, mundane humanness, we just might be able to turn water into wine, which is really just a metaphor for trying to live a transformed life. The stories show us the faces of mystery. Through them, we connect to the collective unconscious. This is where our personal work, what we're willing to do on the inside, can become social work or social justice. When we transform the world, we transform the self. When we transform the self, we transform the world. So as we leave, what are the signs that are calling you forth? As we go, let's say, hello to the thunder in the desert, to the voices of one crying in the wilderness. Hello to the ways in which we don't fit inside boxes and to the ways in which our voices can become small. Hello to the ways in which we surprise ourselves by climbing out of the boxes. Hello to Jesus sitting on our shoulder like a friend, to sweet laughter calling forth the things that are hidden. Hello to the dark storm. Hello to the straight road that is endless and wide, to the ladders in the sky that are leading to freedom. Hello to the imagination that stirs us, to the bones that become stars, that become bones. Hello to unpopularity. Hello to the thunder in the desert that brings sweet, sweet rain.
No matter where you go this week, watch your step because you carry precious cargo. And Bill and I will see you here next week. Thank you.